Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with award-winning author William Collier Hall about his new novel, Florida Boy. The story begins when he's about 14, and even though his father will never realize the dream of owning property, John Morgan is determined that they will. We'll discuss Albert J. Russell, a leader in public education in the 19th century. We're not exactly sure why, but at some point he became very interested in the um, mass public instruction of students throughout Florida. And we'll visit Rollins College in the 1920s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Author William Collier Hall is known for his dark but engaging stories about rural life in Florida. His new novel, Florida Boy, continues that tradition. When Hall's last novel, The Trouble with Panthers, was published in 2010, it received some impressive accolades, including the Florida Book Award for Best Popular Fiction and the Patrick D. Smith Award for Best Novel on a Florida History Topic. Anytime you write a book, if you don't get any good positive feedback, it's very disappointing. And it caused me to write the new one. Hall's new novel, Florida Boy, is a prequel to his award-winning book, The Trouble with Panthers, and deals with the fictional Rollerson family. Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered is generally considered to be the best novel about Florida pioneers. Smith and his fictional McGivey family was an inspiration for Hall. The first book that I wrote, Pat was gracious enough to read the manuscript for me. And he told me it wasn't that good, but he said, you, I see promise. I rewrote it, gave it back to him, and he loved it and wound up getting it published. So he was a big influence on me. William Collier Hall's first book, September's Fawn, is a tragic story set in a North Florida swamp and nearby Cross City. His second novel, The Trouble with Panthers, introduces us to the Rollerson family, who are trying to adapt from the past to an inevitable future. As we got into the 21st century, the Rollerson family, um, they had been raising cattle for almost 100 years on this property. And as has happened with a lot of families, the, every member of the family did not agree as to which direction they wanted to go. The value of the land had, had risen to the point where it made no sense to keep raising cattle to half of the family. And 
caused a conflict. They wound up having to sell the property. And the principal character in that story was uh, 18-year-old Bodie Rollerson. And, of course, he didn't like what had happened. He wanted to raise cattle like his father and his father before him. And it turned out to be a tragedy, as has happened with a lot of real families in Central Florida. It's the death of family patriarch July Rollerson that sets the stage for the end of an era in The Trouble with Panthers. In the new novel Florida Boy, we witness the birth of July Rollerson and the origins of the family in South Central Florida. The Rollerson family originated, or as the story begins, in Osceola County, and the James Arthur Rollerson worked for other cattlemen. He never owned land of his own. And it had always been his dream to have his own place so that he wasn't beholding to anyone. He and his wife moved to, in the Fort Pierce area, in what is now St. Lucie County. And, but again, they're renting. They rent property about several hundred acres and start their own herd and start to raise their family. The firstborn, John Morgan Rollerson, is the protagonist in this story. The story begins when he's about 14. And even though his father will never realize the dream of owning property, John Morgan is determined that they will. Since Florida Boy is a prequel to The Trouble with Panthers, it's not giving too much away to say that John Morgan Rollerson is successful in establishing a family homestead despite some major obstacles. There are vivid descriptions in Florida Boy of what life was like for 19th and early 20th century pioneers in Florida and the challenges they faced. If you live in Florida with no air conditioning, no running water other than a pitcher pump, you can imagine that times were tough and the people had to be tough or they wouldn't make it. I'm not quite that old, but when I was a youngster, I had neighbors that had no electricity and we had no air conditioning. And now I look back on it and I don't know how we did it because if I had to go without air conditioning now, it would be very difficult. They, they didn't have the machinery. This is actually about the time of the onset of the automobile. And the Rollerson family, do not, they do not own an automobile. Everything is done horse and buggy or horse and wagon, mules. They had to pretty much do everything for themselves. Uh, they very rarely ever would go into Fort Pierce to buy provisions and uh, only the staples. Everything else, they either raised it or hunted it. And they did a lot of fishing. The Rollerson family deals with much tragedy and death in Florida Boy, and not all from disease or accidents. Hall shows that pioneer Florida was every bit as wild as the Wild West. Even though St. Lucie County or Fort Pierce had a constable um, and who later became the sheriff, he had a lot of country that he had cognizance over and there was no way. I mean, most of the laws had to be implemented by the people. And you're right, there is a lot of death in this story, but I believe there was a lot of death in, those, in every family back then. Not all the children ever made it to adulthood. 
The history of Florida cattle families includes many stories of pioneers taking the law into their own hands. Perhaps the most famous example of this is the Barber-Mizell family feud of 1870 that resulted in at least 13 deaths. The fictional Rollerson family also deals in frontier justice. In the trouble with Panthers, July Rollerson always told Bodie, he said, if you run across trespassers, you handle it. We always have. And around the early 1900s, uh, it was basically all you could do. Because by the time you get the guy from Fort Pierce, it's all over. And I didn't, I tried to, I didn't want my protagonist to come across as being a, a bad guy, but there were situations where he, he had to do things he didn't want to do. With the death of July Rollerson in The Trouble with Panthers and his birth in the new novel, Florida Boy, the topic of William Collier Hall's next novel seems clear. I've given it a lot of thought. I, I haven't started it. I rarely write in the summer. I only write in the winter. Summertime, I'm brain dead. But yes, I think that it would, there are plenty of historical events that will take place from the end of Florida Boy to the trouble with Panthers where I could write a good story. And July lived a long life. He was almost 94 when he died. So there's a lot of writing there. William Collier Hall is author of the new novel, Florida Boy, the prequel to his award-winning book, The Trouble with Panthers. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. We hope you join us right here every week, but our program is also now available as a podcast from iTunes and other distributors. Our Florida Frontiers blog is on our website at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society to support this and many other educational outreach efforts. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, public education policies are still hotly debated today. 
What was Florida's public education system like in the 19th century? When Florida first became a territory, there really was no provision for public education. In fact, when Florida became a state in 1845, there was no position for a state superintendent of education that was actually passed on to another office. So there really wasn't a lot of importance placed on public education, but also private education. And really, the private education for a student was designed to the wealthy. Uh, it was a privilege uh, rather than a right. Most of the children that grew up in Florida in the 1850s, all the way up through the 1870s and 1880s after the Civil War, most of whom had a very rudimentary education, usually at home. Uh, if they were lucky, they learned to read and write from their parents or from a teacher who was visiting. Oftentimes, the local church might educate some of the local children, and that was really just to read the, the Scripture and the Bible. So most students uh, really had no idea the importance of an education and because Florida was still primarily a, a very rural state, a lot of these children grew up, lived, and worked on the family farms. Albert J. Russell was an important figure in 19th century education in Florida. Tell us about him. Well, Albert Russell was not a native Floridian. He was actually born in Virginia in 1829, came down to Florida probably sometime late 1859, just before the Civil War, was working in Jacksonville with his brother, actually, as a builder. He was an architect by trade. The Civil War broke out. Uh, Russell actually joined the Second Florida Infantry, joined the Confederacy. He fought throughout the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy, was eventually paroled, and then came back to Florida. Uh, he resumed his business in, in construction, helped to rebuild the city of Jacksonville, after the Civil War, which had been really devastated, and many of the buildings were gone. There wasn't much infrastructure left. So he kind of rose through the, the social ranks of Jacksonville at the time and eventually was uh, elected to the city council. He moved his way up to the city board of public instruction, and we're not exactly sure why, but at some point he became very interested in the mass public instruction of students throughout Florida. What his vision essentially was to um, create a populace of Floridians who were educated and who were willing to then apply that education to state affairs. So he wanted to keep Floridians within the state to help the progress of the state. In the late 1880s, 1884, he was appointed the state superintendent of public instruction, one of just the, the first few. And it's in this office that he really began to implement a lot of these long-term plans. And, and what were some of Russell's accomplishments during his tenure? Well, it's hard for us to think about now, but, you know, in Florida, the thought of a publicly funded education system was really just unheard of. Most people didn't want to pay for someone else's student to go to school was the idea. They would educate their own children if they wanted to. So there was kind of an uphill battle to convince the public this was a worthwhile endeavor. But he was fairly successful, and a lot of that had to do with his oratory skills. He was known as the Florida's silver-tongued orator. He was renowned for giving these long speeches, usually without any notes. <laughs> so oftentimes there were no statistical data to back up his, uh, his claims, but he was so convincing as an orator that uh, a lot of people really came on board with the idea of free public instruction. So during his tenure as the state superintendent, which he actually served under three governors through the late 1880s and into the 1890s, uh, he was able to establish a Florida school for the deaf and blind uh, in St. Augustine. He also set up an agricultural college uh, at Lake City, which later became, was, was rolled into what we know of now as the University of Florida. He also revised and, and enacted uh, a school line and essentially drafted the bill that would become Florida's first system of, of public education. And he created what we now call grade schools or graded schools and a high school system. So the idea is that it was a common system of education, starting with a student in first grade, would then slowly kind of work their way up to high school and then to uh, some kind of post-secondary education. 
Now, of course, education was not equal for white and black students during this period. Well, that's exactly right. So we have to understand kind of the context of late 19th century Florida. Now, Russell, even though he was a proponent of education of all Floridians, Florida was still very much a segregated state and was entrenched in the Jim Crow South era. So, you know, African-American students were not afforded the same rights that white students were, especially when it came to free public education. Um, Now, as I said before, Russell was a champion orator, and he gave thousands of of public speeches throughout his career. Uh, But I want to read, this is an excerpt from a a book that was published just after his death entitled The Life and Labors of of Albert Russell, published in 1897. And here's uh, an excerpt from a speech that he gave to a group of Masons in the late 1880s about why it's so important to educate the children of the state. And he's speaking here in reference to the Democratic Party, which he was a, a strong supporter of at the time. And Russell says here, quote, whether born on the soil or made a citizen by adoption or other circumstances, stands on its own merits, and that is his success or failure, will depend on his own industry, honesty of purpose, and perseverance, that the government is of, by, and for such people, and in providing schools, they are provided from principle and not from sentiment, and that as long as there are colored or white children in the state, there will be provision made for their education, not because they are colored children or white children, but because they are children of the state, who, when they shall have reached their majority, will be clothed with the rights of citizenship, and therefore should be qualified to exercise those rights intelligently and honestly, end quote. So see, in the public arena, it sounds like, wow, you know, he's a, a proponent of, of education for both African Americans and whites. But uh, again, we have to understand that these were segregated schools. And even though in the state constitution, there are provisions to provide what we now know as or refer to simply as separate but equal provisions for African Americans, it wasn't enforced as such. And that's a big difference uh, that we see here. You know, you can pass a law in Tallahassee, but enforcement throughout the state is, is a very different thing. And that uh, unfortunately just didn't exist up through the, the 20th century. Um, many black schools in the states fared uh, much, much worse than the public uh, white schools throughout Florida. Interesting. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. I enjoy hearing about the history of Rollins College, having graduated from there a couple of times. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at Rollins College in the 1920s. Rollins attracted students mostly from the Northeast. Uh, This was almost from the beginning a Northeastern college. You could travel around the state and probably not find very many people uh, outside the central Florida who knew what, that Rollins existed, but people in the Northeast knew a lot about it. That was Dr. Jack Lane, Emeritus Professor at Rollins College in Winter Park. He spoke to me about the pivotal decades of Rollins College between the 1920s and 1930s. Here, he tells me what student life was like at that time. It was not cheap, so uh, it had a tendency to attract kind of wealthy students from the Northeast, so that gave it a certain tenor. If you look at the photographs 
of Rollins in the uh, 1920s, you see a pretty typical jazz age look about the college, about the students, kind of clothes they were wearing, and had a um, had a very cosmopolitan look about it. It had a nice, well, a kind of jazz age look to it when you when you look at the photographs. Hamilton Holt, a Northeast reformer and magazine editor, came to the college as president and introduced a new system to the college, as Dr. Lane describes here. The 1920s was a pivotal period in the history of the college because it had really uh, run into troubles during the First World War when most of the students had left, or many of the male students at least. So the college was um, desperate to get someone who could turn it around and did. They got a man named Hamilton Holt who came down and brought with him some really important educational ideas, mostly from the progressive movement led by John Dewey. And so uh, Holt really uh, brought in a kind of uh, shift in the way the college had been conceived and, and its whole curriculum. So he began to change not only the curriculum, which was a pretty progressive curriculum at the time, but also the whole tenor and nature of the college in that direction. So that was a very, 20s a very important period. Students at Rollins in the 1920s would have enjoyed an active student life that included sports. In the first decades of the 19th century, particularly with baseball teams coming down here for spring training, some of them would come early. Some of the professionals would come early and play on the Rollins baseball team. And um, Rollins started a football team in much the same way, people, students. It was not clear that these were all students who were playing football for Rollins at this time. Tennis became a very important part of Rollins' sports in the 1920s, particularly in 30s. The Rollins tennis team has a long tradition that continues today. It usually in Division Two, it's uh, often playing in the finals in this. So it started pretty early. After the stock market crash in 1929 and the bank and real estate busts in Florida, Rollins College found itself in the grip of the Depression. President Holt sold the faculty and students on policies to get them through these tough times. Then, uh, of course, in the 30s. Rollins was affected by the Depression just as everyone else. In fact, Holt, um, if you look at contracts that he sent out to professors in the mid-30s, it would be not only are you not going to get a raise this year, we weren't even sure we can pay your salary, so if you can forego our payment of your salary for a few months, we would appreciate it. Holt devised a scheme in which he divided the number of students with the amount of um, money they needed to run the college, and they divided it up, and that was the tuition they charged each student. Uh, Holt always saw the college as a, as a uh, institution of service, so he would tell both faculty and students, you know, this college is your responsibility. If you want to keep it open, then we're all going to have to sacrifice. That was Dr. Jack Lane. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Find it on iTunes and YouTube. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. Zora Neale Hurston is best known for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, set in early 20th century Florida. Hurston also trained under renowned anthropologist Franz Boas, collecting folklore and folk songs throughout Florida. On this WPA recording from the mid-1930s, Hurston documents a railroad work song. This song, they called Shove It Over, and it's a line and rhythm, pretty generally distributed all over Florida. It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on a railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that I gathered that in 33, 1933. 
When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it. Oh, shackle, lack a lack a lack a lack a lack <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Eat him up, whiskers, or he won't shave. Eat him up, body lights, he won't bathe. Shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you line that? Oh, shackle, lack a lack a lack a lack a lack Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Oh, the rooster chewed tobacco, the hen dip a snuff. The bitty can't do it, but he struts his stuff. Shove it over. Hey, 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 oh, can't you line that? Oh, shackle, lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field. A mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, 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 oh, can't you line that? Oh, shackle, lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, hey, oh, can't you try? The captain got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you line that? Oh, shackle, lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? Uh, this is again for lining. This is lining. the lining rhythm. Now, uh, where, where is the, the movement? When they the say shackalackalackalack, they're getting ready to pull back. And when they say ah, they show the rail. Uh-huh. Oh. In other words, it's quite, uh, for this song, this song gives them quite a lot of rest in between. Right, a lot of rest in between. And, and a harder shove. And a harder shove at the end. Uh, they, and they say, ah, they all go. It seems to have, have a different effect from the other lining one you, yes. you gave. I mean, that one about uh, mobile. Yes. So. But some of them are short and some are long. Just according to the mood of the liner. And the men work whatever song he sung. They work that rhythm. Uh, now, when the men are lining, they put the rail down. And then, of course, the captain... He squats straddle of it and uh, looks down it so he can tell when it's lined up in, in, in uh, exact line with the others. And if the carrot, well, he'll say, uh, shove it over. Uh, and the carrot too far, he'll say, send it back. And when they get it exactly in line, he'll tell them, join it ahead. But they corrupted that to join ahead. And all of them say, join ahead, for join it ahead. And uh, so uh, this song is... Uh, about a lining and the rhythm goes with it. They put, the, they put this uh, lining bar, this long steel bar, crowbar, between the legs and, uh, and, and so they have greater purchase and pull back on it. Well, wait a minute. They pull back. How are they facing in relation to the rail? Their back is to the rail. In other words, they're, they're pulling up on the bar. Pulling up on the bar. They don't have to look at the rail because that's the captain's job to see when it's uh, uh, right. So how, do they, how do they get it under the, under the they just push the flange of this, this lining bar under the rail and then pull back on it. Do they, look, do they have to look back at it or do they have to feel it? Oh, they can just feel it. Sometimes they look back, you know, but uh, most of them they just can feel it and they, they send it back on there. You're explaining that there's different rhythms that they have. Are there any particular times when a faster one or a slower one would be used? Well, except it, it's not any particular time except just the, the feeling of the, of the singing liner. Whatever song he starts is a fast rhythm, they work fast. And if it's a slow one, well, they work, you know, a little slower, but they get just as much work done, it seems, somehow or another. Mm -hmm. 
Zora Neale Hurston documenting a railroad work song that she collected in Florida in 1933. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of the program or subscribe to Florida Frontiers as a podcast. You can also read our Florida Frontiers blog at myfloridahistory.org. Don't forget to like us on Facebook as well, where we have exciting daily content. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.